I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and we'll open them to 3 John. And I hope everybody can find that, start looking towards the end of the Bible. And we're finishing up tonight the little mini-series that we have on these two little letters of John that are written toward the close of the Bible, 2nd and 3rd John. And remember, this, th- these were written by the Apostle John. And uh, he was coming down to the end of his life. This is near the end of the first century. And there was concern that as the last apostle is about to die, that the Christian converts, people that, that had been one to the Lord in the first century and the beginning of the church, that they would continue on in the faith and, and they would just faithfully continue the cause of Christ. Already there were church problems in the first century. I mean, we're coming out here to the close and the apostles deal with many different church problems. There were counterfeiters. And I don't mean counterfeiting money, but uh, there were counterfeiters. I mean false teachers, false prophets that were traveling around. They were perverting the gospel of Christ. And there were many people that were falling prey to their false teachings. A few weeks ago, we were studying in Second Peter, and we saw there where Peter said that there will come people that will bring in all kinds of damnable heresies, and they'll come preaching about the Lord, but even denying the very Lord that they're preaching. So these false teachers were traveling around from place to place, just as true preachers would travel and missionaries would travel. There were false teachers around. And it was very easy for Christians in that day to fall prey to false teaching. One of the characteristics of a false teacher is that he knows how to to deal with things to get you to believe his lies. And so John was uh, telling these people about this, and he's warning them about this. Uh, They're... There weren't any copies of the Bible like we have today. And uh, so people couldn't just look up the Bible and say, well, what you're teaching is not in the Scriptures because the much new, or the New Testament was not circulated at that time like we have it. And then to compound this, uh, Paul and the, John and the other apostles talked about one great Christian virtue, which is the virtue of hospitality. And so when there were these traveling preachers that came around, traveling missionaries, the thing that the people of God were to do was to welcome those people into their homes. There, there weren't motels and hotels like we have today. And so uh, places that travelers would go would be, I mean, if they had to stay at a public place, it'd be a brothel, or it would be a place where animals were kept as well. And so for those people... Uh, John tells us here that, that they, we need to receive those people. He says you need to bring those people into your home, provide food and shelter for them when they are preaching the gospel and, of course, when they're not teaching false doctrine. In Second John, we dealt with the problem of the false doctrine. There's hospitality that was being shown. And, and John says when a false teacher comes around, don't give that person hospitality. Don't welcome that person into your house. Don't give them food and shelter. Don't pronounce a blessing upon them. You're not to help them in any way. So that leaves us then with Third John. And what do we do with those that are teaching and preaching the truth? So here in Third John, we have John praising someone for the reception of true teachers. He's condemning, you might say, another person for his refusal to help those that were true preachers of the gospel of Christ. And then there's a third person here that he gives a commendation to for their good Christian character. And we're going to read about it here in Third John. So I want you to stand with me as we read God's word. And we're going to read the entire little letter here that, that John writes. This is uh, beginning at verse number one. 
the elder, that's John, unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles, We, therefore, ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he receive himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church." Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet thy friends by name. Heavenly Father, uh, uh, we just ask your help tonight as we preach your word. Help us to understand what we need here from this small little letter that John wrote to this man by the name of Gaius. And we ask you, Lord, just to show us your truth tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are three principal characters in this little letter. There's the man to whom the letter was written. There's a person who needs to be straightened out on some issues, and then there's a third person who was a good example for others to follow. What we're going to do tonight, we're going to take uh, each of these men just as they appear in this letter, and we're going to learn something about each of these men. The first one that John mentions here is a man by the name of Gaius, and we'll call him the prosperous Christian. Gaius is the one who's the recipient of the letter. John says here about him, he's well-beloved in the truth. We don't know very much about this man named Gaius. Now, Gaius was a very common name at that time. It was uh, a common name like the name John. And uh, trying to identify exactly who he is, that, that would be trying to identify someone by the name of John, and that's all that we know about that person. We just know this is a person named John. Well, you can imagine... If there are arguments over the person who wrote this letter, as we talked about in the very beginning when we were uh, discussing who actually wrote these two little letters, there's arguments about whether it was actually the Apostle John. So if we have somebody that we know something about and there's argument about him, you can just imagine that there are people who have all kinds of speculation about who this man Gaius was. There are a couple of other people in the New Testament that were named Gaius, but we don't actually have anything here in the letter that connects us to either one of them. So we have no reason to believe that John's talking about the same person. Here's a name that thousands of people in the Roman Empire had, so we really don't know who he is. All that we know about him is what John says here. He is a faithful Christian, and John indicates that he was prosperous. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he was prosperous in worldly wealth, but as he says here, his soul was prospering. 
Notice here in verse number two again. Beloved, I wished above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. If John was acquainted with most Christians today, this would not be a good thing to say about people. I mean, this would be more of a curse pronounced on someone to say that I wish that your health would prosper the same way that your soul prospers. And that's because most Christians do not have a soul that's prospering. What I mean by that, most Christians are very spiritually weak. And so if we were to say, well, I hope that you, that you prosper as your soul prospers, what would happen to most of us is that we'd be spending most of our time in a hospital bed at Kaiser. And that's because we don't really want our health to prosper like our soul prospers. That'd be a bad thing for us. Can you imagine then what it would be like if our, if our physical health was dependent upon the same kind of nourishment that we receive in our spiritual lives? I mean, there are many Christians that, that will go week after week. They never open God's Word to read it. They can go day after day. They never close their eyes to pray to the Lord. They never take time to consider what God wants them to do. And there are so many Christians that, that come to church one time a week, maybe even less than that. And so that is not conducive for the soul prospering. I want you to listen to what Jesus said in John 53 through 58. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now there we obviously know that Jesus can't be speaking about physically eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Although there are people, the Roman Catholics, for instance, who use these scriptures as, a, as an excuse or a, to back up their doctrine of transubstantiation. Tonight we're going to have the Lord's Supper, and this is what I'm talking about. But they believe that when the priest holds up the cup and when he consecrates the elements, the, the wafer and the, and the uh, cup, that it actually turns into the literal blood and body of Jesus Christ. And so they drink his blood, literally, and they eat his flesh. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. If you want to read a little bit further later on, you'll look down there starting about verse number 47, and you'll find out that Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about spiritually taking of him. So what he means here is that Jesus Christ is the one who gives life. And if our souls are to prosper, we have to continually ingest the spiritual food and drink that God gives. And if we don't, our souls will not prosper. We're going to be weak and sickly, sickly Christians. Now, there are two things here that John mentions about Gaius that show us his soul was prospering. First, he prospered because of the truth. Now, that's a common theme with John, isn't it? I mean, we've been talking about truth in the last two messages. In 1 John, John talked about truth and about keeping of commandments and he said this is the way that we know that we love God and he talked about how the how uh, good doctrinal truths are, are evidence of what Christ has done in our lives and he talks about how that life is in the very son of God that's a great doctrinal truth then in second John 
He rejoices because the lady that he writes to, he says, your children are walking in the truth. And I was glad when I heard that information. So he holds up truth. And the first thing that he mentions here when we get into to third John is the matter of truth again. So you simply can't underestimate the value of truth. See, this is not relative truth. And many people think that's what truth is. It's just relative. What's true for you is not true for me. And what may be true for me may not be true for you. We're not talking about relative truth. That is not truth at all. What we're speaking of is the objective truth of Jesus Christ himself and his word. The truth is the basis for our fellowship. And that's how we prosper. So truth is not about church softball teams. It's not about daycare centers, and it's not about social programs that we have in church. Truth is the objective reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a truth that demands repentance and faith. It demands a change in our lives. It's talking about the keeping of commandments, and that's what we talk about when we talk about truth. And it's a truth that can't be avoided if the soul is to prosper. I think it's interesting that when Jesus was talking uh, uh, to that woman that was taken in adultery, that he said to her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No no man, Lord. And the next thing that Jesus said, Well, that's wonderful. Welcome to the family of God. Let's let's have a photo op here. Let's take a picture with one another. Smile, God loves you. That's not what he said to her. Now, after he said, thankfully, neither do I condemn thee, he said something else. He said to her, go and sin no more. She had a response to this. There's accountability with God. And she recognized that. That's what we talk about when we talk about truth. Recognizing that objective reality of what God wants from us. But most don't really care about truth at all. To them, if I can do a good deed, if I can serve soup down at the soup kitchen... If I can help the homeless, why do I need truth? What's truth mean to me? Well, truth matters because of this. In that regard, humanitarianism is not equal to salvation. We're not talking about equal things. All saved people, at least in one sense of the word, are humanitarians, but not all humanitarians are saved people. What has to happen is that Jesus has to be in the middle of all of that. And better, I should say, he has to be in the beginning, the middle, and the end of all of that. He's the central, the one that we look to. I mean, he is truth itself. John said, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So this is what John commends Gaius for. He says, for the truth, your soul is prospering. And the result, that's the result of truth. So it's truth then that caused love to flow out of this man named Gaius. And next we see here the really theme, really the theme of these two letters is about hospitality. He prospered because of hospitality. Look at verses 5 and 6. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. So Gaius was the kind of man that when a stranger came, when... It was evident that this person was a true Christian. Here is a person teaching the truth of God's word. Then he welcomed him into his home. Now in chapter 2, John says, those false prophets, he says, warning, keep them out, keep out. But here he talks about true teachers of Jesus Christ. And he says, welcome, come in. That's what we need to do. Now look at verses 7 and 8 here. Because that for his name's sake, they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. 
We, therefore, ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So he says, here are are people that are going out witnessing and preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, and the world is not going to help them. The world's not interested in that. The world hates the message of Christ, and so they're not going to help missionaries. They're not going to help preachers. And so John says, we must. We have to do this. You know, there's a scripture that comes to my mind about this. Do you remember that one in Hebrews where it says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. No, I, literally, I believe that he literally means angels in that place. He's talking about special messengers that came from God. Now, some people misinterpret this, and they think, well, what God is doing, he's sending angels by our house on a regular basis, testing to see if we're really hospitable people. I don't think that's what he means. I think he's using a comparison here. Abraham and Lot literally entertained angels without knowing it. At first, they didn't know about it, but they entertained them because they were God's messengers. So I believe what the writer is saying to us, be kind to strangers. There, there are people come by, and you, you may not know how God is going to use that person. So you listen. I mean, you want to make sure it's a person teaching the truth, but that person could be a blessing to others, and if you help them, you, you're encouraging the gospel of Christ to go out. Hospitality is something that was expected of Christians. Remember when Jesus told the 70 to go out, and he said to them, don't take any money with you. Don't take two coats. Don't take two pairs of shoes. Jesus said, you don't have to prepare for that. What he expected was that they would live on faith, and that faith, what they needed, would be supplied by the hospitality of other people who received that message. And that kind of takes me back to my childhood, because I remember, of course, everyone knows that my dad was a, was a preacher, preacher for 40 years and a pastor, and he was somebody who was helpful to strangers. Hospitality in John 3 is in the context of helping those that are true servants of God. I mean, this is about someone who takes the gospel to others. He serves God, but he doesn't have anybody to help him. And that's what my dad did. He often helped other people in this situation. So I remember when I was a child that uh, many times that our house would be filled with, with college students, just boys and girls that were training for the ministry, and, uh, and my dad would give them a place to stay. Often we would have them in our home. We'd have meals prepared for them. And uh, I remember particularly that there was one family that the father was uh, called to preach, and he was studying to be a pastor. They had no place to go, nobody to help them. They had no money, no job when they came to go to school. And so my dad fixed up a place in the basement for them, and they came and they lived with us for a while until they could afford a place to stay. I remember when, when I was first saved. Uh, you know, I was saved in that little country church that I've told you about up in the hills of Kentucky. And uh, I remember many times that we would take poor, hungry people, uh, children often, we would bring them home with us. My mom would, would uh, give them a bath, put clean clothes on them, and, and give them a, a good meal to eat. And that's what John's talking about here. Where is our compassion for people? This is what John's talking about. Where, where's the help for somebody when they need it? Now here, of course, he's talking specifically about traveling missionaries, and Gaius was a man who would help them. I think it's good when our missionaries come that we help them. Our missionaries come, and one of the things that we always do 
you don't see this because, uh, you, you, I mean, it, it's happening behind the scenes, but every missionary that we support, when they come here to speak to us, they get a very generous offering for having come, come to speak here. And we do that because we want to help them with their expenses. They come to report to our church. They're working in foreign fields. And so when they come by to speak to us, we give them a healthy, a healthy offering. Now, let me make just another brief comment about this. John says in verse number 7 that these missionaries go out and they take nothing from the Gentiles. What he means there is they're not taking their support from people who aren't saved people. They take their support from the people of God. The support doesn't come from the world. That, that thing has kind of changed in churches today because churches today take dollars from any place that they can get it. Sometimes... Fundraising activities are the number one thing that churches do. They've always got some kind of fundraising thing going on that they're bringing money from outside sources and from the world. But I think that the Bible teaches us that the main work of preaching the gospel of Christ is to be uh, supported by the tithes and offerings of God's people. So what that means is that we as Christians, we have to bring our support to make sure that we are able to stay right here where we are, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, reaching people in, in this world with, with the message that God wants us to give. And so the support must come from God's people. Now let's go on here for just a minute to the second person in the letter. Uh, Gaius is the prosperous Christian. The next man is Diotrephes, and we'll call him the problem Christian. John introduces us to Diotrephes in verse number 9. He's a person who caused problems in the church. He set himself up as an authority. He took control of things when he had no business doing so. There are many people who believe that Gaius was actually the pastor of this church and that uh, Diotrephes was a man who was sort of a thorn in the flesh to the, to the pastor. This is an indication that here in the beginning of verse number 9 that what Diotrephes had done he had actually intercepted a letter that John had written to the church, and he didn't allow that letter to be read to the people. So what John did then was to write a separate letter, and he addressed this specifically to this man named Gaius, who's the pastor of the church, because that would be a letter that Diotrephes could not intercept. So here is a man who just didn't respect the authority of God's word. So we see here what he did. He rejected apostolic authority. John is the elder. He's the last remaining apostle. His authority is well known throughout the churches. He's still responsible as a foundational building block of the church. In the book of Ephesians, it tells us that the church is built upon the prophets, the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So what Diotrephes did, he didn't respect the authority of John. He rejected it. Now we would say, well, how could a person reject the authority of an apostle? What Christian would possibly do something like that? Christians everywhere do it. Preachers do it. They do it when they change biblical doctrine to suit them. What were we looking at this morning? We were looking really at how many people reject apostolic authority. Churches ignore it. When, when you know, I, hate, I don't really want to get back into the subject again tonight, but we're going to... I'll be talking about it probably in Sunday morning forum class. But when churches have women speak out in the church, when there are women preachers and women teachers that take authority over men, there is no authority in the Scripture for that. That's against apostolic authority. 
Take a look again at 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Corinthians 14, where it talks about speaking in tongues and how women ought to be silent in the church. Do you think that it ever happens that people don't respect apostolic authority? Of course, it happens all of the time. What about the home? Paul talks about how a woman is supposed to be in submission to her husband. Do you really think that there are people out there, actual Christians that, and Christian women, that don't respect the authority of their husbands? Of course there are. And what that is, it's a rejection of apostolic authority. Then you also have this. You have people that are waiting for that next religious fad that comes along. They're waiting for another purpose-driven church book to come out or purpose-driven life. They're, they're waiting for the next pop religious writer to, to write something. Something comes from his pen, and they'll take those things and put them up against the Word of God. And what do they do? They take what that person wrote instead of God's Word. I mean, it may reject authority of the, of the Word of God completely, totally. They don't care about that. And so you have churches where people are up and dancing around in the church. They're hooping it up to rock music. They're sipping their lattes in the church, and they're watching the entertainment go on in their theater-style environment there. Well, that's not what John says that we ought to be doing. These people are not walking in the truth. That's not the truth that Gaius and, and John and the apostles walked in. So there are these problem Christians, that is, many of them if they're Christians at all, and what they do is they actually hinder the cause of Christ. That's the kind of man that Diotrephes was. So he has his own doctrine, his own way of doing things. He has his own agenda. He ignored the authority of John the Apostle. Now, secondly, we find out that he was involved in groundless gossip. Here he is saying things about why I should be followed and why John shouldn't be followed. And if Gaius had was the pastor of the church. Here was a man who, who says, well, you don't need to listen to the pastor. He doesn't have any authority. Don't listen to what he says. All of you know that, that I am not an authoritarian pastor. But I'm not a pastor without authority. Authority has to be here. and You need to respect that authority. You respect the fact that I teach you the word of God and that really I don't want to be somebody who holds your hand and follows you around to see what you're doing every day. I don't think that I need to do that. Then John says here, he's prating against us with malicious words. That means he's spreading this groundless gossip. He, he's trying to tear down the ministry here. So here's a person who worked behind the scenes, sneaking, gossiping, uh, trying to get at the leadership. Now let me say two things about that. Number one, stop it. Stop that because that is despicable. Christians ought not to be involved in it. And if you're not the one that's saying it, don't be one who's listening to it. There's nothing that'll stop gossip faster than a good, solid Christian looking someone in the eye, pointing their finger in their face and saying, I don't want to hear about that. Gossip only travels when, when, when people repeat what they've heard and they're willing to listen. Gossips don't like talking to themselves. And so you stop listening, they stop talking. The third thing we found out, find about him, a third problem here, is lording instead of loving. He didn't care about traveling missionaries. He had no compassion, no concern for hospitality. He's interested in, in position, interested in self-styled authority. What that's called is pride. I see some of you mouthing it before I ever said it. Pride, that's exactly what that is. And who do we know that was really a prideful being and fell because of pride. Who is that? Satan, exactly right. Lucifer 
fell because of pride, and we wouldn't call him Satan today if it wasn't because of his pride. And that's the kind of man that Diotrephes was. I don't know if he was a deacon in the church. don't know if he had a particular position there. All that I know is that he had this self-appointed authority, and people started listening to him, and he started acting as some kind of lord over the church. Did you know that Peter said that not even the pastor is to be lord over the church? He gave instructions to pastors, and he says, neither being lords over God's heritage. Now, I don't know what's gone wrong in this area, but it seems like in the, in the, in the Christian schools and our colleges that they, they're turning out these young pastoral candidates who must have attended Lordship 101. Lording 101, that must be the course that they studied and they graduated in because today in our fundamental churches, congregational polity is a myth. It's a myth because you have authoritarian pastors who have totalitarian rule. I don't think that John was pleased with that and he wanted to see that turn around. So he wants us to show some love in the leadership and I think he, he wants us to see that when you have love, when you treat people in love, that you don't have to fight tooth and toenail to maintain leadership. So here we have Gaius, the prosperous Christian, Diotrephes, the problem Christian, but we have one more person in the letter and that is Demetrius. And Demetrius is the pattern for Christians. Demetrius is a, is a Christian that stands in contrast to Diotrephes. How many of you have a Schofield Bible tonight? I mean, I'm using a Schofield Bible. Some of you have one. Here's something that you'll notice, that right before verse number 12, it has a subheading there. It says, the good Demetrius. I actually think that Schofield has it wrong here because he put the heading in the wrong place. I think that verse number 11 goes with verses 9 and 10 and not with the rest or the end of the book. And so I think that since that's connected, that he's saying here to, about Demetrius, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath a good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. So I think that John is telling Gaius to look at the example of Demetrius and not the example of Diotrephes. So how is Demetrius a pattern for Gaius? Well, first, he's a man of good reputation. John says he has a good report from everybody. Everybody talks well of this person. He says the truth testifies of him. So I think Demetrius was one of these good, well-rounded Christians. He's a pleasant person to be around. He never spoke badly of others. He wasn't a gossip like Diotrephes. And here John says he has a good report of all men of the truth itself. And I think that means that he was tested by the truth. And when he was tested, here is a man who comes out unscathed. There's one writer who says this about him. He said, it's not that he bore witness to the truth, but that the truth bore witness to him. Demetrius was not the standard by which truth was tested. The truth was the standard by which he was tested. And having been so tested, he stood approved. I think that's a lot like Job. Remember what Job said in Job 23, verse 10. He says, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Some people misunderstand that because Job is not saying here that trials are the things that purified him. Job had already proved that he was a righteous man. Remember, that's why Satan came in the first place. Uh, God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
God gave testimony that Job was a righteous man before Satan ever came to afflict him. And so Job knew that when he stood before that judgment of God, he was going to come out and be proved that, that he didn't sin like those miserable comforters, uh, comforters, of, comforters of his said. They said, you know, all these things happened to you, Job, because you're a sinner. Something's gone wrong in your life. And here's what Job says. Well, God knows the way that I take. God knows what's in my heart. And when I'm tried here, I'm going to come forth as gold. So God affirmed that in the very beginning before Job was ever tempted, and God affirmed it in the end. He says that Job was a righteous man, and that's after Satan had thrown everything at him. So Demetrius, as a man who would stand before God, instead of having all of his works burned up like wood, hay, and stubble, here is a man who shines forth as gold and silver and precious stones. So that's why John contrasts him. He says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, also known as Diotrephes, but follow that which is good, also known as Demetrius. Now let's look just very quickly in the end of the message tonight at that word follow. We've discussed that extensively when we were studying in Ephesians. This means that Demetrius was a man worthy of imitation. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Followers, if you remember, comes from the very same word that we get imitator. Paul says that you are to imitate God. But listen to something else he says. This is in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Be an imitator of me. Is there anything wrong with following other people, imitating other people? Well, Paul says it's okay if that person is an imitator of God. You know, whether we admit it or not, we all imitate people. We imitate others. If that wasn't true, then the fashion industry, cosmetic industry, the beauty shops and all that, they'd go out of business if somebody wasn't imitating somebody else. We're always imitating. The thing that we have to do, we have to look and see who we're imitating. And the ones that we're to imitate are not the bad examples and as a Christian, not the bad examples that may be in your church, not the diatrophies, look for good people, good servants of Christ, and be imitators of them. There's nothing wrong with doing that. So if you want to imitate somebody, find a Demetrius. Follow that which is not that which is evil, but that which is good. So I want you to remember this last statement here. Follow the truth so that others can follow you. Be the kind of person who lives in the truth, lives in the light of God's word, and then people can imitate you. They can follow you. They'll see a good example. So 3 John then, in the very end of the chapter, it closes out similarly to 2 John. Here John says, I love, I want to go see my friends. I want to go see these converts that I've won to the Lord. And I think that whenever John traveled to wherever this church may have been, no matter where it was located, they would see John coming down the road, this old man perhaps hobbling down the road, and they'd throw open the screen door, and they would say, Welcome, come in. That's because John taught them Christian hospitality. He says, Keep those false teachers out, but the good, godly servants of Jesus Christ, open that door for them and say, Welcome, come in. That's Christian hospitality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we learned from this little book of 3 John. Lord, help us to be Christians who are hospitable. Uh, may we help others that are spreading the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We pray for our missionaries and all those who go out that they would receive the kind of reception that they need, that people would help them, would send money, do whatever it takes to make sure the gospel is preached around the world. And then, Lord, we also pray that you would uh, help us as a church, that we might be centered in your truth, we might follow you as you would have us to, and that every single member of Berean Baptist Church would be a good example for someone to imitate, for somebody to follow. Help us in this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.